And yes, we are live. We are live. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I am Rob Wallace, and this is the Zero Noise Podcast, where we engage in progressive discussions about hip-hop, life, and everything in between with our guests. Again, my name is Rob Wallace. I am an educator, school leader, and scholar of hip-hop. Through my study, I lift hip-hop as both the subtext and the product of American culture, a medium of liberation and the literature of the search for freedom. I regard the hip-hop album as critical discourse about life and the interpretation of life in America by those who create it. These are the rules of engagement. We discuss hip-hop albums within the context of personal impact first and build out from there. Art is not valuable if it does not challenge, if it does not ask, if it does not respond. We acknowledge that music decorates time as art decorates space. It is absolutely deeper than rap. We listen through limitations of genre. We critique intent, content, and delivery of purpose. We pay homage to the artisans as well as the artists, as no album is a one-person show. We under-promise and we overperform. I ask no people to visit with me and talk about who they are, who they have been, and what they do. I also ask them to be ready to discuss an album that played a role in them becoming their them. You will not hear the music we will discuss during the show for many reasons, but you will never hear it the same afterwards. Therefore, this is a music podcast, but it is a people's podcast first. And today, that person is Noah Kaplan, and the album is Low End Theory by Tribe Called Quest. Mm. So, but first, before we talk about Low End Theory, we want to first welcome Noah Kaplan. Welcome, Noah. Rod Wallace, so good to see you. I uh, can't say enough about what you just said. Um, as well, an artist, yeah, as an artist myself, um, I genuinely appreciate what you just spoke about art and about music and how it impacts people. So, thank absolutely. you for having yeah. me. It's an honor. It's an honor to have you here. We are we're 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 happy to have you here as one of the sponsors of Zero Noise Podcast. As the CEO of Leon Speakers, we want to quick give a quick shout out to our other sponsors. First of all, edigging.com, edigging.com, where they do the digging for you. So if you are a producer, if you are a music head, go to edigging.com and they have actually chosen samples for you already. They chop them out for you. They do all the work, especially in COVID time. So go to edigging.com. It is a subscription service. You can subscribe. It's updated on a day-to-day basis. So visit edigging.com. Also, we will be remiss not to recognize Grove Studios as one of our sponsors, Grove Studios in Ypsilanti, Michigan. You can visit them at grovestudios.space. Grove Studios is a 24-7, 365 production workspace. You can podcast there. You can produce and record music there. You can do your photography there. It's also a cool place to hang out. So hit up grovestudios.space. And we want to give a shout out to our sponsors. But for today, we're going to be speaking with Noah Kaplan. So who is Noah Kaplan? Mm, Starting deep. Noah Kaplan is a simple person, an artist at heart, um, who found himself in a business role. Never have talked about myself in the third person. Ah. I apologize in advance to everybody for that. But no. Um, started out as an artist and musician, 
never really dreamed of creating a company or a business. Um, it was really an organic journey for us over the last 25 years. But I've always been obsessed with sort of the vision of how art and audio interact and also how design technology kind of overlay. So the intersections of those disciplines, art, audio, design, technology, and actually now we talk a lot about how business and bohemia intersect because as an artist, I still like to live immersed in an art world, not at all interested in corporate life. Um, so I've surrounded myself with people who are really amazing at business um, who really allowed me to be myself and live out this vision um, for Leon speakers and also as a person. That is the dream right there for an artist. Let all the suits do the suit stuff. When's the last time? You, when's the last time you wore a suit, Noah? I had I had a very challenging time in my late thirties mm -hmm. uh, where I put on the sport jacket and oh. I, I I did the thing. I had a sport jacket, you know. I had tailored pants and all the things. Um, I had to watch all those things on. I had to play that role for a brief moment, but you know what? That brief moment did not fit me well. <laughs> it fit me at the time in my late 30s. You know, that's like kind of post-reckoning, post-becoming yourself. But I remember the last time I put one on, I was like, this thing doesn't work anymore. So <laughs> hung up all the suits, all the jackets, put them away. And um, I can say now that uh, my wardrobe has become moderately homogenous. With black t-shirts, black jeans, and hoodies. So I right. apologize for that. I've tried to wear color for today because you know. Listen, don't apologize for it. I wore suits and shirts and ties for 20 years, and I have liberated my closet. I am a hoodie, <laughs> jeans, boots, rock ports. Don't tell anybody. Rock port, <laughs> beads, comfortable. beanies. Today's hoodie is brought to you by Double Negative People, by the way. Double Negative People. Hit me oh. up. Hit me on Instagram. DM me on Instagram if you're interested in getting one. Shout out to Mike Notes. I'm hitting people. Right yeah, absolutely. DM me if you're interested in one. They are one of one. Double yeah. Negative People. For the people. But, yeah, you got, the, you got the uniform on today. You got, I mean, what is this? The glasses? The thing? <laughs> I, I normally have on a zip-up joint, but, but you got me. So, so let's kind of take a step back and, and how did like when did you first kind of realize that being an artist or being artistic was something that served you well like even back in childhood yeah from i mean i'll to go way back to childhood um i think i was always a born artist so you know since as long as i could remember or as my friends would say, since forever since. Um, I was an artist. I can remember being three, four years old and just obsessively drawing, staying in my room and drawing. Now, as a person, I'm an extrovert, but as an art, I'm obsessed. As an artist, I'm an obsessed artist. So I would lock myself in my room and draw and draw and draw. Mm -hmm. um, and I really never did it with any intention. You know, the intention was just about who I was. So it was part of my identity since as long as I can remember. Mm. That said, art is a very solemn act. So I also like to participate in the world in other ways. And that's what led me sort of to sports and music and people mm. and entertainment in general. Uh, because I love art in terms of a meditative, like sort of piece of my life. But it never really fulfilled me in the rest of the ways. Mm. Um, so art is a trade when it comes down to it. 
you know, I had to learn a lot. Um, and I didn't really meet my mentors or teachers till later in life. You know, even during college, I met some, but really my, my greatest mentors I met after I went to school, I went to art school at University of Michigan. Mm -hmm. But I found a person who sort of led me farther and farther along right after school. So it was after school that I really started digging into like what it means to be an artist. There is no teacher, no training for that. Right. Uh, the way our society works is kind of in reverse. So I kind of remember uh, dreaming as a person and as a kid. And my teachers used to describe me as being out the window. How about you, Rod? Can you relate to that at all? Yeah, in terms of just having being in a different space. Yeah. Being able to see things um, from 10,000 feet early was something that I was able to do. I was able to see the entirety of the painting and not the subject of the painting. So it was difficult for me to focus in on very particular details for mm. a long time. And that, that affected me in school. I think, you know, I always say that I think that I had ADD before they called it that um, because I focused on the entirety of the picture. And I think that's what happens with a lot of young people or a lot of people who may have that. It's it's. um, Yeah. And I see the same thing manifesting itself within um, music as well. Um, mm -hmm. they say, for example, like as far as mixing, um, you know, you don't get too obsessed with one sound. Make sure that you understand how the sound fits in with everything else. Mm -hmm. And um, I kind of operate. I kind of do both. I kind of can hear, you know, when, when I when I started to hear myself isolating things that I was hearing, then it was like, ah, OK, now I can see things a little bit differently. And so, yeah, that led me towards being more of an engineer than an actual performer. That That's that's interesting, because I think that journey, like especially in schools when you're young, schools aren't really oriented or at least when we were growing up or when I was growing up, mm -hmm. weren't really oriented towards the arts. You know, I was like, you know, pushed into the PACE program, which was an arts program, mm -hmm. but it was, in my, you know, it was way down the hallway away from everything else. And they probably would have considered me, you know, ADD. I remember them testing me for all these things and me kind of just um, looking them deep in the eyes and saying, yeah, I'm definitely different. I'm thinking about the world different, even at that age. Um, you know, this is single digit life, nine, nine years old. And remembering like, yeah, I definitely see the world differently. This isn't the most interesting thing for me to be sitting in this chair and this desk. Right. Remember, remember the feel of those desks? Yes. You're made out of like strange materials. And I would draw on the desk. I would draw on my notepads. I was doodling. And even at an early age, I was kind of already getting into studying art. Um, and, you know, everything that could have meant from graffiti on the trains all the way to, you know, nature books. So I had a really diverse upbringing when it came to looking at art in New York. Yeah. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about growing up in New York as an artist and mm -hmm. what you saw, like what I, for, for us, for us who weren't raised in New York and have a deep affinity for hip hop. For me, when I was growing up, New York was like a fairy tale land. Like, mm -hmm. You know, you hear about the different places and you hear about Jones Beach and you hear about an island and Shaolin and, you know, Queensbridge. You know, this was something that you guys were living through. And I'm curious about 
how New York had an effect on you as you grew up as an artist? It was really interesting. And New York has so many facets to it. You know, so we moved out of the city when I was very young. We moved to a small, what I call a train stop city called Merrick, Long Island, which was on the South Shore of Merrick. So, um, you know, that's where you kind of ended up in the suburbs and your culture came from New York City. So we lived in a very small little like kind of normal world. But for us, you know, I could see literally the Twin Towers from my house um, in Merrick. And that's meaningful because you could take a boat to the Twin Towers from my house. We grew up in a little tiny um, town. And to be there, um, moved out of the city because my, you know, my mother's from the Bronx, my father's from Brooklyn. We, I was born in New York City and then we moved to the island and my whole family's still in the city. So we always looked up to the big buildings and what was going on there. And that always affected how we thought. So when you think about all the music that was being made at that time, in the 80s, 90s, it, w- it was massive, massive in the city. So you know? I, I'm, so when did you when did you first start paying attention to hip hop? This was what this is what's so interesting about New York, because remember, this is pre everything. So a lot of what you got was from radio and what you were exposed to was luck a lot of times and then all the people we worked with were very it was a really diverse group of people we worked with you know so a lot of the things i learned the most about like you know from classic rock all the way to hip-hop you know you were listening i literally grew up with eight track tapes in a cadillac in my mother and father's car that's real in a tan cadillac you know with eight track you guys i don't know if anybody even remembers what an eight track tape looks like you know sticking in a cartridge do you remember this? I don't generation, know. Generation check. My dad had a Mark Seven. Oh, he had a white Lincoln Mark Seven, and it was all Teddy Pendergrass, Patti LaBelle, Tyrone. Oh, yeah. You know what I'm saying? All, Johnny Taylor, all that. So I get it. It's the same exact thing for how we lived, and so for us, it was like a really nice mix of classic rock, hip hop, blues, jazz. Everything was sort of my family was really it. My mother especially exposed us to tons of different kinds of music. Um, you know, all the way. It, it could have been comedy. It could have been like a comedy, a track, as much would be in the car as like a music. So we just listened so much, everything from like Richard Pryor to the Beatles. Mm. You know, and it was mm. so raw at that time. We didn't realize how beautiful it was and how real it was, all the recordings at that time. So, um, but when we really started to get into it, it was probably, you know, early 80s when we started to really get exposed to modern hip hop, you know, sort of what was going on on the West Coast, really different on the East Coast, because, you know, early on, for whatever reason, we were super into everybody from Dana Dan to Slick Rick, Eric B. Rakim, Fat Boys, Force MDs. I mean, this is super early hip hop. Absolutely. You, You really didn't hear it on the radio. So you had to go to the village, go to the record stores, go to the tape shops, especially. We were all tape heads, so we were always looking for the next tape, next tape, next tape. Who was so you talking about like Ron G, K Capri? Oh, yeah, early, early. You know. But you know, and just like you know, just straight up two four hip hop, yeah, <laughs> boom, cat, right. you know, boom, right. boom, cat, and then you know, like, but the rhymes were just so real and so part of every day that it just was it just fit, 
it fit with the times and you had classic rock on the other side. So like Z100 wasn't going to play all the hip hop. <laughs> At the time, there were hip hop channels, but it was it was early. And one, was one, of the first, one of the first rap songs that, um, you know, when I was I was born in 77 and I mean, I remember the um, Sugar Hill Gang. I mm -hmm. remember that it hearing that at like a distant cousin's house in Ohio when I was young. Um, and mm -hmm. I, you know, I used to sit in the barbershop and read the, I said this before, I used to sit in the barbershop and I used to read the top 20 singles in Jack out loud. And I was like three, you know. How I, about four? How about Source and- uh, No, nah, the Source was late. Now, you know, the that Source was, was later. Was later. I know it was later, but that was like, what? After like Black Beat, Right On. Right, right. right. Songs that I remember. Uh, from hip hop was New York, New York by Grandmaster Flash and a Fury. Oh. And like I said, so my my cousin, and it's a song on the last tape I put out called Paul Kennedy, where I'm I'm talking about him talking about. I mean him him playing that song was one of my first memories. And in the song, like I said, for us that loved hip hop, New York was like this fairy tale land of culture. In the rhymes it says, "A castle in the sky, one mile high, built to shelter the rich and greedy." rows of eyes disguised as windows looking down on the poor and the needy so there was this place of contrast it was a great contrast of grandiose wealth grandiose um uh uh, uh progress yeah. meanwhile at the time from what i know about new york new york was buck wild it was wild. The streets it was straight up insane it was and and we didn't know from enough to know you know, we didn't really, we couldn't get a full grasp of it because we didn't really go to all the places. Like, you know, we went to very specific parts of the city. You know, we spent a lot of time in the village at the record shops, went to the East Village a lot. And, you know, like, but we really, you know, Brooklyn, Bronx, um, even, you know, Spanish Harlem, all the other places where all the, the sick music was coming out of, it was really different. You know, this is um, New York at its rawest. And so you, you definitely knew what was okay and what wasn't okay, you know? Right. Um, and that was real. That was very real. Um, you know, and knowing your place and knowing who you are and understanding that whole culture was, was serious. Right. And I mean, let's just keep it a buck. So rap was, you know, a predominantly African-American and Latino construct in New York. And here you were as a young Jewish kid, right? Yeah. yeah. And so what did... How did hip hop frame your understanding of kind of intersectionality in a way? Um, what role did hip hop play in your understanding of like class and race as a dynamic around you? Well, I have to give extreme props to my friends um, who I grew up with. Luckily, we all worked at a summer camp together. And so us, you know, Jewish kid from Merrick got to spend a lot of time with our friends that we worked with that we went to the summer camp, which was like our haven. Right. Um, and from the South Bronx. And so they exposed us to just amazing amount of music and just really also the, the life that they were living was really different. But when we were all together in the wilderness, when we considered the country, which was upstate New York, which is the country, right. um, we would all be working in the kitchen. We worked together. We were, we were super close. We grew up together. Frank, Nitty, everybody, you know who I'm talking about, Lee Bone, right. um, Ramel, like these, like we all learned together from each other. And so we had a super tight relationship. So they exposed us to so much amazing music. 
you know, and we expose them to our music and to uh, different ways of life. And what you find out about life, in my opinion, is that not only are we all seeking the same thing, um, but people just want to be comfortable with each other. You know, there no one really wants conflict. Nobody wants to grow up in fear. And um, it was really important for me and lucky that I got exposed to all different types of cultures in New York um, early on to know that there is a lot of hardship that I just could never understand, mm. you know. Um, and our main mentor, H., who was like the elder of everybody from the Bronx, you know, like I remember him telling me a story um, when he came back from the city and there was bullet holes in the side of his car, straight up bullet holes. And H was fine, mm -hmm. H was calm. And he was kind of like the father for all of us. And my father was kind of like the father for all of us too. But he, my father was a doctor. My mm -hmm. father was a caregiver. H was our caregiver on, the, on that kind of cultural side. And we all listen to H and um, just listen to how it was and how fearless he grew up and how much hardship there was for no reason um, always was heartbreaking and ridiculous. <laughs> and, you know, it, it doesn't make sense. So when you don't understand, you know, I was too young to understand everything at that time. Mm. Um, but it wasn't about understanding at that time. We, we had so we had the most fun you could ever imagine. I mean, when, you know, it get it, you know, like that just, I was constantly mocked. I think they, I'm like, my nickname was Shorty Should Stay until I was like 14 years old. Wait a minute. Now, I was, I was literally four foot, like five when I was like, I was a tiny, a tiny man, a tiny. It was a Wu-Tang dude named Shorty Should Stay too now. Hey. Was that I, like something that people called each other back in New York at that time? It was what. It was what they called me and I'm okay with that because <laughs> because it was fun. I'm like, we all were that close, you know, like, but, um, and they'll be laughing when they see this, but I remember when I graduated, probably when I was like 15 or 16, mm -hmm. they're like, all right, all right. They saw that I had kind of ways, I have ways about myself <laughs> I came into my art self. They were like, all right, kid could draw, kid could draw. So we used to do tags. We used to draw. We dreamed of like making brands. We dreamed of a brand called Fizo, Fizo Funk. We we wrote for clothes. We dreamed of clothes. We dreamed of walls. We tagged. We did it all. Um, but it was really lucky to get exposed to that, especially coming from Long Island, which was kind of honestly um, homogenous and broken up not only by culture but by socioeconomic class, uh, religion. It was ridiculous, you know. Like, and it, it still kind of is, honestly. Um, you know, you have boroughs and it wasn't bad. There was an honor to it all. Everybody understood what was going on, but it was definitely different than I could ever explain. I understand. I understand. So you go from this affinity for art, this affinity for urban culture. You go to University of Michigan mm -hmm. and now you're in the Midwest. The Midwest. I don't yeah. know if it's, you know, I, no. it, you know, Ann Arbor tends to be Ann Arbor is, is a little bit it's, it's a little baby cosmopolitan place a little bit in a way mm -hmm. so a big culture shock for you to come to the Midwest with your viewpoints of the big city one of the craziest things I could have had I, I was I won't say that I was aloof but I definitely was always dreaming you know so 
I how I got into like how I went to the university was was kind of one of those miracle stories. Like I was a straight artist, so I was thought I was going to you know Pratt University or RISD. So I went to a portfolio review in the city mm-hmm. at Pratt University, never dreaming that I would be in the Midwest. I always dreamed that you know I'd be a New York artist or because my whole family is still there. Right. And they were already they already were New York artists and, and they were living there and they still are. But um so I always imagined that that lifestyle. But my mother took me to this portfolio review and she my mother went to University of Michigan and she said, No, show show your art to this guy at the University of Michigan. I'm like, Michigan, I don't even know where where is that? Mm-hmm. And <laughs> I'm sorry, Michigan, but I did I did think that in my mind. Um, but finally I went and showed, uh, the professor from Michigan, the art. And for whatever reason, we actually connected for real, you know, we actually connected. So he was asking me a lot of questions about the art and I'll never forget. He asked me this one question where he said, Noah, why did you draw this portrait with crayons? All these colors of crayons. Then I looked at him and I said, um, because I had a box of 64 of them. And he's like, I want you to come to University of Michigan. <laughs> and he said, how are your grades? I was like, they're fine. And sure as shit, I ended up getting an acceptance letter from University of Michigan. I didn't um, apply in a normal way. Um, and that was one of those one second things that changed the whole course of your life. And that's indescribable. So when I got to the Midwest, um, because I was in the art school, it was a very small microcosm of reality, but still a culture shock, you know, living out here and, you know, thinking the thoughts that I had versus the thoughts that when I got to a dorm, like I literally came here, I packed a green duffel bag. I took my radio. I had a boom box. I had a duffel bag and a boom box and I got on a plane and I showed up and I was like, give me a cab to the university. And they're like, what do you mean? <laughs> like Michigan. I'm like... Because I didn't know you were supposed to go with your parents, and they would help you move in. So right. I literally, I showed up there alone in a in a room, oh and uh, and it was great though because I had my tape collection and my duffel bag, and I had my radio, and I had a few clothes. So I got to Michigan with just that. And when I look around me now, um, I could have never expected the life that I would lead. I never thought about being in business or making speakers or what kind of art I'd be doing. So it's kind of hysterical looking back on it all, as you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. And 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 for the people out there, um Noah again is he did build a company called Leon Speakers that offers high-end audio that builds in by design the artistic desires of the customer. Yeah. So let's talk about how, because I think the one thing that's being missed, I think that we hear a lot about the artistic side, but there's also a tech side. Mm. And and one of my theories is that um, hip hop is born of technology and it bears technology. Like it, hip hop and technology have intertwined for the entire mm. time from its inception. You mm. know, the use of the turntables being different, the use oh. of um, the, the building of sampling technology, the building of audio technology, the boombox and car audio and home audio would never have been what it would ha- what it has become without hip hop. Mm-hmm. The, the you know as well as music production, the strides that we've taken in terms of audio availability for audio manipulation availability, 
um, mm -hmm. for the consumer. Um, all of that stuff is because of hip hop. So where did the art piece seems to be very clear. The music piece came in, but there's a very big tech side to what you do as well. Yeah. Well, for sure, you know, when, because as I mentioned before, like art was sort of my trade. It was, it was what I was born with, but it really didn't give me like the social outlet or the outlet in general that I needed as sort of a person, like an extrovert. Mm -hmm. So what ended up happening was I remember stealing my friend's guitar uh, because I didn't steal it. I mean, he had a lot of guitars. So I was like, hey, can I borrow this thing? And I started strumming, I remember. And then I became, you know, really entrenched in learning guitar. I, you know, learning myself how it worked. And then we did slowly form bands and we jammed, we played and we recorded. And once you're in a studio and you see all the bright lights, you know, and the, and the knobs and the buttons, you know, on mixing boards and start understanding what it all is, which was, which was much later after I played for a long time. Um, obviously technology has a lot to do with all those things. And so you end up learning a lot about the signal path, you know, how, how would you get from your voice to playback? And that signal path is kind of, it, it's beautiful. It's, it's intrinsically complex, but if you really understand at a certain point and when we were growing up, it was, understanding on an analog level, which meant, you know, you're, you have to understand the microphone, what kind of microphone you get when you sing into it, a microphone is kind of like a reverse speaker. Mm -hmm. You know, so when you sing into a Neumann, it's a beautiful piece of technology that's been around for so long, 50, 60, 70 years of these right. amazing. And, you know, I just became completely enamored with all this equipment. It was amazing to learn about it, but mostly because I was always, I always felt like a student of technology, like a student of music, and I still feel like a student of art. Um, I'm not a good teacher, so it makes me be a, a student. Mm -hmm. So I just started looking at the objects themselves, and I really fell in love with what they what they look like, how were they made, the branding on them, you know, everything from the from that all the way to the Tascam four track, and then when we we hit two you know uh, two inch tape, and then you're you're looking at all these mixing boards how these mixing boards work and it was all it took a long time to make sense of it all but yeah hip-hop and the technology and how it's all intertwined it, it's immense and 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 then learning about the history here in in motown of course you know where the most amazing music in the world was made um i got into that once i got into the midwest mm -hmm. and so it was it was more than hip-hop was also just like you know learning about motown and how that all went down how Barry Gordy like created an ecosystem um, of love that is immeasurable in a small space using the most basic technologies that were so well made. But you know, like the technologies are one thing and then the passion, creativity, um, like you were talking about in the beginning of the show, what you bring to it. Cause art, what did you say? It was, you could say it much better, Rod, you always speak, you know, like you could say it better, like at the beginning of the show, um, the impact that art should have needs to come it's from not not if it's not valuable if it doesn't challenge you right if, it's not if it doesn't challenge you to to think differently or fit if it if it doesn't either ask or it answers a yeah. question yeah. yeah and it has to be, and so the technology is actually dormant you know the technology needs to be used by an artist so it's a paintbrush like a norman mike is a paintbrush right. it's not it doesn't act in solace it has it, to, it has to be manipulated 
Right. And so the way it's broken and the way it's pushed forward, like if you think about, you know, people who really push the art forward, like Steve Ray Vaughan or Jimi Hendrix, who pushed electric guitar over the edge right. of the waterfall. Right. You know, they did that using the same guitar and the same amplifier as anybody else ever had. They just realized it was more more soul, more destruction you could put into it to get better sounds out of it. And I feel like that's the same thing that hip hop learned. Like, you know, how did we get from something so basic? And, you know, truth be told, Rod, I was actually way, I was super obsessed with dub reggae. So, okay. you know, uh, right. So as much as I loved hip hop, as much as I love classic rock, dub right. reggae was something that also like I blew my mind. Right. You know, like echoes and overlays and dubs and like collaboration. It was massive, massive. I mean, I was like, I would be like flipping through all the, the right. records trying to find the new thing. You know, Sly and Robbie and the, like, but all those things, bass and drums. Right. And where do you go from there? Vibrations. Vibrations and, you know, sound has that magic. Music has that magic that right. it's just an endless palette. Just like, so like it's all paint to me. Right, right. Technology is part of the colors of the paint. So, so why did you, why did you stay in Ann Arbor? Like, why, you know, why Ann Arbor? Why, why didn't you? Mm. Uh, and maybe it was just a matter of chance, but I'm curious about why you chose to keep keep this venture in Ann Arbor and not move back towards everything that you know and everything that you grew up knowing as an artist. So there's luck and heartache there. So I had met a woman, and I did, and that woman is now the wife. Yeah. And um, so she was still going to school here, but through another friend that I met, um, Stan, he worked at the university athletic department and he was a potter. And he, he they wanted to do a commit, like the University of Michigan wanted to do uh, a series of portraits of their scholar athletes over the last 80 years and so stan who was the artist uh, in the athletic department they were like hey stan do you know how anybody who knows how to draw portraits stan called me he said hey noah i have this thing it's a commission um i want to know if you know how to draw portraits i'm like yeah i draw portraits so i showed up to the athletic department with my portfolio at the time and showed them yeah i could draw portraits now little did i know that i was meeting like the president of the athletic department okay. it was it was like a serious corporate thing i had no idea i was not prepared for it right. but you know we handled it and i did i got that commission and so i had i ended up getting the commission to draw over 40 portraits of university of Michigan scholar athletes which kept me in ann arbor it gave me enough revenue as you know as an artist to be able to not only create art but also to play maniacal amounts of music uh to procrastinate instead of doing that job right and wow. so that's why i ended up staying and that that job took me almost nine months we started a band then that's when we started the first business leon uh two of my other friends who were musicians they stayed along uh and one was a writer and one was an incredible musician my two business partners in Leon. And so we started an art gallery. We started building products. We started a pirate radio station. It, it was just an epically creative time of life, but still no idea that I'd stay here forever. Mm -hmm. And the tragic part was, you know, 9-11 uh, 
um, when we did have a plan actually to open up space in New York City, um, which we had a space, we had a spot, and then 9-11. 9-11 said, nope. 9-11 was not having that years later. And you know, um, oh my God. I mean, you know, my, I remember my, my, I'll never forget it because I flew back from New York to Michigan the day before. Wow. Yeah. And then my mom called me watching the, the watching the towers burn from the window of my house. Wow. Yeah, that's dark. And so what I mean by heartache, like that was just unimaginable times. Wow. You know, from like, you know, from like, you know, you looked up at those things as a kid, you know, at those towers with reverence, you know, and that was like in a, another world. Those, those are the buildings you didn't know how they, how did that happen? It's a part of the lore. Like to me, it's kind of a part of the lore of New York City. Not only the towers themselves, but the towers falling is now a part oh. of lore of the city, mm -hmm. the, the city in the world. You know what I'm saying? So I yeah. get unimaginable. So yeah, but that really rooted us here, you know. And so we really dug into the company and business we had built here. Right. We figured out what's going on. We we built our little factory. It turns out Michigan in the Midwest is an amazing place yeah. to build products, uh, to build a community of artisans and craftsmen and thinkers. And uh, because of automotive history in Michigan and also the music history of Michigan, there's amazing amounts of knowledge. Yeah that the Midwest holds. And you know what, in the Midwest, like now I'm like a Midwesterner, right? Because we do the damn work here. We build shit from scratch every day. You know, I'm in this, this morning, I was cleaning studio, working in the studio, go to the next thing, you know, build, build products, oversee what everybody's doing. There's right. projects going on like crazy. And we had, you know, there's 50, 60 craftsmen working at Leon now. Right. You wow. know, yeah. So, but it's this is where we do the damn work, and so I don't think we could have done this in New York. Obviously, could have done it in the city where we have a factory and machines and people who know how to run machines. I remember something was different when in like the second little. I won't call it a factory; it was more like a shop. I knew things had changed when I was driving a forklift. <laughs> Listen, hey, my shout out to Jason Wilson from Detroit, Cave Abdullam. He says. If you can't be the janitor, you can't be the CEO. I completely agree with that. I, You're not going to do the dirty work. You can't do the clean work either. Oh, you cannot. I mean, I worked in the factory for the first 15. We didn't know what a factory was. 15 right. years, you know, like building the products, designing the products, making the products. Right. Um, but you, I agree with that. Like, And you know what? You should never stop being the janitor. So in terms of going from concept to team building to failing up you know what how can you advise or how would you advise especially creators mm -hmm. involved in growing a business because as creators we operate differently than people who step to the venture mm -hmm. with a business paradigm we tend to be, we tend to need brand new innovation. We tend to be idea people. We tend to experience discouragement mm. when things don't work out. So how would you, like, how would you advise creators who are increasingly 
in more control of their mm -hmm. own brand, their own business, their own merch, their own entities? I I talk like this is it's an amazing question, first of all. Um, and the way I see it is there's two there's multiple types of currency that we overlook. Right. So the monetary money is one of those currencies. Another currency is, you know, there's social currency, there's artistic currency, there's just general like what is your life, what what is your vision, what is your mission? And so when if you want to be a creator, I always think about like what is the next thousand days gonna look like? How do you want those next thousand days to go? And so if you're starting a venture, if you're starting a business, um, I was born as a hustler, so I like to do not just one thing. You know, I always wanted some form of cash flow. And I think getting cash to flow is one of those things that is so hard. It's become easier now with social media. Mm -hmm. But when when we were young, this is crazy, but I had one simple gift that made me a successful artist. And that was curiosity, right? And the question. So um, to all creators, what I would say is, are you willing to ask the question? And the question is this simple. I remember as an artist, the first thing I did was after I got that first job, I called for my next job. I called a literal random restaurant and I said, hi, my name is Noah. I'm an artist. Do you have any work that you need an artist to do? I literally called a damn restaurant mm -hmm. and the person who picked up the phone happened to be the director of one of the most important, um, you know, restaurant ent entity groups in the entire region. That dude put me to work for five years from that one question. And then even just like, Rod, the simplicity of the question, like, hey, can I make you a piece of art? Um, and what are you going to say to that question, Rod, if I say, hey, Rod, do you want a piece of art? Absolutely. Right. And honestly, that's the simplicity of what I've learned over the years is that I want to create for people. And, I, and I'm willing to ask that question. Do you want something for your home that's done for you? Do you want something in your life that will enrich your life? And like, so without shame, I, I believe in shameless self-promotion, um, but in a humble atmosphere, you know? So like, you know, like if you look at my desk right now, you know, I sketch and draw all day still. You know, there's my whole desk is always going to be covered with drawings. And if people want them, you know, like I'm going to give them to you. And so I was never afraid to sell something for $10 or $10,000, you know. How do you determine what's worth $10 and what's worth $10,000? You know, um, I can tell you from my perspective, there is one piece I created that was priceless. Mm. That people tried to buy from me and I didn't allow it to happen. <laughs> And, and before you go any further, let me say this. Leon Speakers is a sponsor of the Zero Noise podcast. And I do want to talk about the other connection that we have involving the Amplify Fellowship. I definitely want to talk about it as well. But if you go to Leon Speakers, it's a bunch of stuff at once. It is a broadcast studio with a stage and instruments and all that. It is an office building with offices and speakers that's made out of like Wu-Tang symbols and dragons and stuff. It is a factory, a full-fledged factory with complete manufacturing and everything with a, a distribution dock bay 
mm-hmm. or whatever it's called or whatever. But the thing that sticks out most to you is the fact that it's a museum mm. of technology that probably was not. I mean, it was some of it was consumer level in 1953. Yeah, <laughs> and well, now, yeah, bro. <laughs> and now, well said. I mean, there's there's technology that's there that is old, and it really, it really, when you walk in there, it is really like you're in a place that kind of helps you to understand how important the connection between technology and art is mm-hmm. so when you talk about things being priceless you have things in there that are technically priceless for for sure i mean to me the objects that were created in the past the creativity level like if you think about capturing sound that happened in the late 1800s when it, you know when it was figured out that you can actually ca- capture a sound wave on wax think about to me, it's so mind blowing um, that thought and how far it carried us into the future or that you could transfer an image onto a piece of tin or silver. Um, and then that people at that time with no machine, you know, no machines, no, you know, even before electricity were making products that even with candles and imagery and paintings, you know, that were there to kind of represent culture like, yeah, there's one piece that we have from that was made in 1880 called a Psyopticon, you know, where not only did they make the machine and how it worked, it was powered by a gas lamp and it would project just like it was, it's like a projector. But if you look up Psyopticon and you, so like, I don't remember when I became completely obsessed with this kind of technology or thoughts or like, what was the dawn of technology? And the cool thing about technology, like the dawn of technology was not that long ago, 150 years ago, 100. 160 years maybe so it's a brief history it's this much history you know it's all win. so it's like you know for me i could look at it and and explore it and so the reason it's all here and the reason it is priceless is because um it's because i want to pay reverence to the people who got us to where we are you know to all those creatives that got us to where we are so any object i see you know like uh because and this is obviously my artistic bias is like there is not a thing that you look around you that wasn't created by an artist or a designer or a thinker you know and so when i look at these things i'm like how the hell did they capture that how did they do this how did they become great yeah exactly yep i'm sorry no worries i was reading i was lip reading i hear you Inspired them to create it. I'm sorry, I, I muted myself. So, um, yeah, I know we just went a little deep. I'm sorry about that. And this is a podcast of the people, it's right? Not about music. But I do want to talk about you have success. You build a company, mm-hmm. an international imprint, mm-hmm. distribution all over the planet. Retailers across the globe doing what you want to do, able to collect shit that you love. <laughs> and 2020 comes mm. and you are affected yeah. by what you see. In a pandemic, there is social unrest that 
is really, I want to call it a culmination, but it's more so a reminder mm. to a degree mm -hmm. of what is really happening as a subtext in our country. The death of George Floyd, mm -hmm. um, the death of Breonna Taylor. Mm -hmm. And you and your team decide to do something about it. Mm -hmm. Talk about how that idea kind of came about and what those conversations were like that led to the Amplify Fellowship. I mean, through the whole pandemic and through like um, at Leon, we're like a, we're a family company here. Right. And we're a diverse family comp company. And so um, through the entire thing, we all felt now, number one, that we were connected in a, in a different way, not only politically at Leon, um, but in, in, a, in a much deeper way, you know, experiencing not only the joys, but the pains and everything that goes along with life in modern times. And so not only with the social unrest, but with the political unrest, we, we weren't okay for the last number of years. Oh, okay. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, so um, I think it was way off. I think that the culture, the vibe, everything felt like it was off the rails compared to how we live life, like as a family of people. Um, we want to learn from each other. Like, and so we believe, like, I think it's an artistic thing to believe that you will never get better. Just, at, you know, homogeny does not vibe at all with artistic creativity. It, it's insane to think that it would. And so, um, when especially when the george floyd incident happened and we all watched together something that everybody already knew about um something that we've seen systemically in in this country for as for our whole lifetimes because i'm 47 years old right. um and when you think about this country people like if you can't see this it's unimaginable to me considering that when you think about voting rights women when was women's voting right it was 1950 women in this country couldn't vote 70 years ago women couldn't and so to think that there's not some and systemic when you know like and then you start thinking about where we are today and people who can deny the fact that there is systemic racism and there's issues that we got to face and that we got to work on things seemed completely insane to us. Um, and so just honestly, together, we wanted to just work, learn, listen, and understand how we could do whatever it takes to play our part to create more a more equitable society. Well, so the Amplify Fellowship, um, Noah and his team, um, had some conversation with Rove Studios, who I was working with as the educational programs coordinator at that time. We had built some partnerships with some different entities in Washtenaw County to provide um, a lot of different support uh, for their programs. And when this came about, there was a company that was in Ann Arbor, the way we saw it, the way I saw it, there's a company in Ann Arbor that wants to figure out a way to amplify black voices so we develop a large amount of programs um with the fellowship really being the first stage 
and myself and Maya Evans. Shout out to Maya. Maya. I mean, who works tirelessly. She does. Um, As is Rod Wallace, if I can say. What's up with both of us? I'm going to just stop it right there just to um, just to shout out to Rod Wallace. You, you, I mean, the way you frame the vision, um, built the vision, you know, how do we create something that's not just of the moment or something that's like, you know, a social media stunt or whatever, you know, like that is completely uninteresting. Like, you know, we needed a five-year vision. Right. And um, Rod, without you, you know, we couldn't have figured out exactly how to do it right. And uh, and we are so blessed to have the most amazing artists, not only here at Leon, right, but here in our county. And yeah, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. But Rod, you're much better at like capturing vision and capturing mission. Well, I think than almost anybody I've ever met. And so what I what I'll tell you was in terms of creating what the vision should look like, I really looked at it from kind of like a stem to stern kind of perspective. And looked at the fact that um what do you know if your interest is in amplifying and supporting African Americans in the county is multifaceted. There are a lot of great community organizations that are doing the work to support um, the needs of African-Americans in our in our in Washtenaw County. And I wanted to make sure they got support. I wanted to make sure that artists could eliminate. We could eliminate barriers for artists to be able to create the art that they want to create. Um, because, I mean, it's still a money game. My man Brandon Scarborough said, if you want to blow up, it takes a hundred. It take a hundred racks in one year. If you can spend a hundred thousand dollars on your music, you can blow up. Mm -hmm. And a lot of artists don't have that. So if we could chip into that, that would be great. But also look at what kind of opportunities are available to expose our young people to the nuances that's involved in an international business that's based around technology and art. So yep. we all of those, we built all of those things at the same time. And so now we have Kenyatta Rashan, mm -hmm. we have Danny Darling. We have London Beck, who are all releasing projects this year. Um, and what's, what's funny is, you know, I hate to put this out there, but, you know, we came to them and said, hey, you know, let's put out an EP. And they've come back to us and say, well, we might have albums. And a lot more. That they've had. So I commend you. I commend the team at Leon for helping that to make helping them to make it happen for all the people out there follow amplify washington at instagram mm -hmm. follow um leon obviously leon speakers mm -hmm. follow us on clubhouse all that good stuff or whatever blah 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 so we got some great things that's coming down the pipes as far as the fellowship but the partnership is not done either because there's some other things that's happening with grove there's some other elements of the fellowship that we have in place we have the what now music industry forum mm -hmm. where We've kind of shifted the conversation about the Amplify Fellowship to really being a dual meaning where the Amplify Fellowship itself is a program that supports artists. However, we also want to amplify the fellowship of, especially in lieu of the pandemic, amplify the fellowship and networking opportunities for the music artists and music artisans around us in order to build a an ecosystem. Mm -hmm. So artists in this area can get everything that they need right here. They can get publishing support. They can get legal advice. They can get video. They can get gra graphic design. They can get web support. They can get social media support. All of that is kind of built into what we've developed through the fellowship. 
Mm-hmm. It's just it's just been a fantastic thing. It's been amazing to see. And, you know, like um, if, if anybody ever gets a chance to go see the Motown Museum and they're rebuilding the Motown Museum and Barry Gordy's vision, you know, it's all about it's not just about the music. Right. It's about how to all work together to understand the business, the industry, where it's going to go and make sure that no one's getting taken advantage of or exploited. These are important topics that nobody really knows about anymore. Like It definitely takes a whole community to work together. And uh, the beauty of all this is um, because, as I mentioned before, being a student of life, you know, I've learned far more from the artists than they could ever learn from me. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. They're out there. They work they're, every day. They're post, you know, they're posting, they're creating yes. and they're fearless. They're fearless. And, you know, every day I look and I just smile and I don't, there's not much more I need out of life than that. You know, that knowing that, you know, whatever we can do to fuel that fire, let's do more because we're not doing enough yet. Absolutely. There's there's more more that we can do. Um, And we've we've been blessed for those artists. For sure. Really brilliant, really spirit led individuals to participate with us who have been willing to do anything to not only help themselves become successful, but to make sure that those community organizations that we've partnered with. Yeah. Um, our house, Ozone House, women and girls working for change here in Ypsilanti. Okay. I mean, yeah, these, yeah. That, well, also because like to model the to model it all is the most important thing. You know, let's all model it together. This is what it looks like. Right. You know, this, this is how it's supposed to work, where everyone's working together for a common cause, and then we all rise up. Um, and so, yeah, I I think that. There is just a new, there's a renaissance of spirit going on right now. And I believe in it. And I believe there's a lot more to do. And there's a lot more learning to be had. And I mean, like, think about the the history that we learned growing up. Turns out, wasn't real. Mm. Mm. Tell me what you mean. What I mean by that is our history books weren't true. We didn't. You know, I, I was a child of the 70s, too. And, you know, these portraits that we paint of everybody from Christopher Columbus all the way on up turn out not to be true. And so, you know, let me like question, question all things. And, you know, I'm like, it's like, hmm. hmm. When I used to when I used to teach social studies in middle school, I used to tell my kids there's American history and there's American lore. Now we're going to talk about American lore. <laughs> Well, you're an educator, so you have a leg up on this. Like, Rod, you know, I love, you know, you as, you know, I call you Dr. Rod because. I'm on my way. I'm coming. Well, I, I don't, there's no, I don't, there's no one that needs, I, that's my own moniker I gave you. So, you know, like, Dr. Rod, you know, you understand, you know, the breadth of the issues here. Right. Um, better than anybody I know. And so. Right. Um, you know, I, I want to relearn. I want to, I want, I want to listen. It's like, but. At the same time, I mean, it's like I talked to my my parents' generation, and even they were like, and my parents were, you know, my mother was a freedom fighter. Yeah. She was out there. She was in, you know, like, but, you know, like, even my father came. He's like, you know, I got to rethink all these heroes that we grew up with. I'm like, yeah, they I, really, they weren't I, heroes. Yeah. I would be remiss not to tell you, Noah, without getting too deep into it, that um, just as we... I'll just say this. 
Um, you know, just as the analysis of the election spent a lot of time talking about if it wasn't for the black folks in Georgia, we don't know where we would be or this, that and the third. And the truth of the matter is. African-Americans have been saving America for a long time. Mm -hmm. And in, 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 in the face of all that has happened and all that has been done. So I, what I would say is, yeah, there's a lot of unlearning and there's going to be efforts to stop that unlearning. And and I, I'm, I'm sorry, but like, yet, yeah, who did we learn about from Black history growing up? We learned about individuals who made um, inordinate, I, I mean, no disrespect to anybody, but, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I think about how we learned about, I mean, there obviously were freedom fighters and things that we Ooh. learned in the mainstream. However, there were people like Crispus Attucks, who yeah. was the first Black man, I mean, the first person to die in the American Revolution. And I'm kind of like, mm, okay, you know, like it wasn't enough though. <laughs> I think that, but I think that we don't spend enough time studying um, the the history that is being made today, as well. For the sure. sure. Well, you know, we, oh. being put in. I mean, one thing that I argue, what I'll tell you, know, is that. You know, I work with In Demand as well in Detroit. It's a it's an advocacy group for black male educators in schools. And one thing I frequently say is that um, black folks and, and black men specifically are really carrying the promise of the school district in a way by serving, by not only teaching and providing content to students, but really individualizing their treatment by um, making sure that they're doing they're teaching the whole child because mm -hmm. they're engaging with and it's not just teachers they're engaging with students as athletes they're engaging with students in clubs and things of that nature and it doesn't take anything away from any of the rest of the teachers but the fact that there is so little of us even in schools that are predominantly black is problematic mm -hmm. so if we take a look at the things that they are doing i think it can address or adjust the behavior and policy that's created by school districts every every there are there are people who are making a difference on a day to day basis, and that is the norm. That is not the exception, as so many of the kids are, are are making out to be. And that's not just teachers; that's people. Oh yeah, my God! I mean, oh. like I went and visit Jalen Rose's school in Detroit. You know, yeah. Jalen Rose, um, David Merritt. Like you know, uh, these are there's there's leadership there every single day that no one hears about. You Absolutely. know. But, you know, like, but when it comes, like, just to think about reframing history and understanding it, artistically, everybody knows how culture, like, you know, what is the roots of culture? Absolutely. The roots of culture is black culture. Like, culture in America is defined by black culture. So, like, yeah, like, rock, uh, classic rock wouldn't have happened without the blues, right? Yeah. Or with jazz. Or, and, you know, hip-hop, hip-hop is American culture. It's the only American culture. Everybody knows that. Everybody knows, but like, um, but to see a whole, like the, the, there was a, there was a dissidence about the last couple of years that made no sense to anybody. Absolutely. You're like, so. And, and, you know, I know we could talk about that forever, but <laughs> I think that's a perfect segue to talk about low end theory. Yes. Um, because truthfully, um, what I would, what I would tell you, well, I, I think before I make that point, um, let's say for a minute, 
I want you to I want you to finish this sentence. Without without low end theory, there would be no what? There would be no. Can I say an artist's name? You could. <laughs> I mean, there might be no Tyler the Creator. There might be no Kendrick Lamar. There might be no. You know, like I would say, um, like there would probably be no. There would be no bridge. There would be no bridge. There may not have been, there may have been creativity and spontaneity and those things were there before, but there may not have been, I, I'm glad you set a bridge. And, and first, before we, before we even answer that, I want you to look at this artwork. Mm. Art is intended to be, art is intended to explain or answer. And yeah, you got it at the crib. What does this artwork say to you about the music that came about as well as, yeah, the positionality? I mean, wh what was going on at this time? What do you notice? To me, you know, like, because the visuals of this album just struck hard and struck at home. And, you know, like, what did it mean, you know, like, Low End Theory was recorded in Queen. You know, this is a Queens band. You know, this is a Queens group. Yes. You know, and so like, what's the descendancy of this album? What's the descendancy of the paint? What does it mean? Yes. You know, what do the colors mean? And it was so apropos of the times and of history that it just like everybody who saw this, everybody knew how important yes. it was from the first second you saw it at the store. Yes. Um, Camp, like there's something so electric about it and so on that it's almost you know i put it in the easy top top 50 of all time in terms of artwork or album artwork and album artwork so and, so yeah. here, here's what i'll say about the artwork what it says to me in retrospect you know hindsight being 2020 notice where the words the low end theory are mm -hmm. on the spine on the spine and theory is right at the butt by the way you know anita applebaum kind of spoke to back here Benita. notice where the name of the group is this is a woman mm -hmm. the name of the group the group is in the womb oh see that's the group is in the womb my god i didn't think of that what is that saying you know the group is in the womb. So, and, and when we talk about low end, obviously there's the discussion about the bottom, the base from mm -hmm. a perspective, but also there's something to be said socially about the low end. And at this point, I mean, I think that this says something about the African-American experience in this country as well. Consider the, the colors being red, black, and green as well. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> yeah, that's something to consider. That's something to consider. And then, okay, so Low End Theory came out September 24th, 1991. Um, and for me, just to put this in context, 1991 is a top five year for me. And I, I have this. I'm probably going to end up having to have conversation with this <laughs> at some point. This is going to be what's in the comment section. The top five years in, in hip hop, not in order. Is 1991, 
in 2003. Now in 91, the 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 perspective that the place where this album came out was amongst the rise of the continuous rise of the West Coast. Mm-hmm. This was when this year NWA's Niggas mm-hmm. for Life came out. Mm-hmm. You had the Ghetto Boys, which mm-hmm. wasn't West Coast, it was more the South, but so rap was expanding past New York. Yeah. Like, like in a very, very fast way. Mind playing tricks on me was huge. Oh, Mr. yeah. Faces back came out that year. Death certificate came out that year. De La Soul is Dead also came out that year. Oh, my, God. my favorite album of all time. So yeah. the context was people were reaching for identity. Ghetto Boys incorporated the blues. The West Coast Incorporated Funk before the chronic, because if you think about it and you go back and you listen to Niggas for Life by NWA, that what that album was based around as much P Funk as the Chronic was. If you really go back and listen to it, mm-hmm. so I was a freshman in high school, and I remember Stacy Winchester came to get me to go to a youth group we were a part of called Kudos. Mm. Go to Kudos. Shout out to John Rhyme. Shout out to all my Kudo brothers from Flint. Life-changing experience mm. being a part of that group. And it was different. Mm. It, it didn't sound like what they chose to base their music, the palette by which they chose to base their music around was different mm. for me. And it taught me, and I think it taught the rap crowd, the rap generation, I think it kind of taught us about jazz. Mm. What do you think about that? Well, I mean, when you you put on Low End and the first song, it actually kind of describes so so much about what hip-hop, where hip-hop came from and what it really, what it was. We had never heard that. We didn't, you know, no one ever just put their finger on, you know, when he says, you know, like my pops used, my pops used to say it reminded him of Bebop, you know? And that's the whole album. That's the whole album. It's like, so it's like, but that made so much sense to every, if you didn't understand what was going on there, you now did. So you didn't know where, you didn't know where hip hop. Now we had a, we had an inside angle on it because we had a lot of friends making music, but like we didn't know why they were making music. We didn't make that connection until exactly that time. Right. Excursions. Excursion. Is a seminal first song on an album. Because for me, when he says, my pops used to say it reminded him of bebop. I said, well, daddy, don't you know that things go in cycles? Things go in cycles. You know, the way that Bobby Brown is just happened like Michael. For me, when I went back and I listened to it with a with a different ear, mm-hmm. what I what I heard was I heard Q-Tip going through his dad's records. Excursions yeah. samples yeah. a song by Art Blakely called I did not know that. I did a not know that. Review, I think it's called. I did not know that. That's sick. I didn't even know that. And it's if you listen to where they got the chop from you won't catch it because the count is different. It samples a beat that I believe is in six, four time. Wow. Into a four, four loop. Oh, so it's B 
bebop a bebop record bebop, yep. and modernized it um and it did a lot of stuff it i i think also um when it, cre- you- yeah, it created an acceptance right there right it was an acceptance of history it's like yeah hey, where we are coming from this is where we have come from yeah like all music in this country you know the essence of it all came from blues and jazz yes and you can hear and even in the loop you can hear the, the bongos mm-hmm. it's kind of when you called it a bridge that's perfect because yeah. bridged the entire span of african-american music you know a century of music up to that point mm-hmm. and so um i just i it, the jazz that was involved is it sampled J- jimmy mcgriff yeah it sampled you know the 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 famous um five stair steps break i think that break was on i want to say it was on jazz the song yeah. jazz. um which to me the song jazz is complete east coast it's nice i mean so- it was mine. I mean, it was, there was like, yeah. when you were listening, the first time you listened to it, every song was on. Yeah. Every song was more on, the ne- on than the next. Just like, I mean, but we were like, you know, so, sometimes like sophomore albums, third out, you know, like you're not expecting it to be as great. Yeah, right. Tribe kept getting better. Like they were like, and everybody still says this, but they were like the Beatles of hip hop. Everybody wow. was a mon, everybody, I mean, Fife had his own way. Tip had his own way. Jacob had. They all had their own vision, but they all brought it together and highlighted how each other's songs right. were written. And so, like, you're like, oh my god, like, so you could sit and and listen front to back and get more and more. And I did the same thing, probably you did. Was, you know, I never put it down, but I I hadn't listened to it critically for probably a number of years. Yeah, and I, I think that if you the, the purpose of our discussions or my discussions during these podcasts with people is to talk to them about the music that they love, but look at it from a different perspective, mm-hmm. you know, really build out the entire context of the record. Like I, I think about the sociological effects. Like for me, again, I was a freshman in high school. So when I heard butter, Oh my God. Butter had an effect on the manner in which I viewed male, female relationships. Mm-hmm. with everything else that i knew what was real you know what i'm saying i mean and, and you know during this time there were a lot of conflicting there was there was the the entire this this entire ethos about um bitches and hoes and yeah you know, and, and this that and the third and this was for i think a lot of us this was a lot more realistic it, it was i think that you know the whole misogynist you know like that was a big topic always and you know for every radio host and all that dude yeah oh, i don't want to play this because and i never really believed in that personally but i did love hearing you know them tackle like serious issues about you know relationships like you know um to talk about date rape on a on an album yes. classic example of a date rape and like you know to, to take it from a, a a far different angle, you know, that everybody can relate to, you know, like, Hey, let's talk about this. Let's talk about that. We're not going to judge it. We're not going to tell you what it's about, but for sure, it wasn't, it wasn't what we had been hearing. You it, know? Was. it was. And it was, a, 
that was a socially conscious record in a way. Yeah. Because I mean, I don't remember, was this? I don't remember when date. I don't even remember what album that was, album, was an issue. I remember there yeah. being television. There, I remember there being sitcoms and things that were kind of dealing with date rape yeah. at that time in a in a different way. And there were other rap groups that were talking about it. There was a group called BWP that made a song called No Means No. No means yeah. no, my brother. Yeah. Are you deaf, motherfucker? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. But even when you look at Butter, again, mm-hmm. music as a socializing mechanism for people, when he yeah. talked about his interest in women that were natural. He talked about weave, yeah. hair weave and contacts being a no-no. While nowadays, that's the norm mm-hmm. um, for many women. Um, one thing he said that I ended up looking up, he said, trying hard to look fly, but show you looking dumber. If I wanted someone like you, I would have swung with Jamie Summers. Ooh. I didn't know who Jamie Summers was. <laughs> I <laughs> did. Well, I'm four years older, so like, you know, we were, I was a senior at the time, so. Jamie Summers was the bionic woman Mm-hmm. That was a split, a spinoff of six million dollar man. I had yeah. no idea. Well, that's like you know, that's that little nuance in time right there between our yeah. generation, you know, between our ages. Um, but I, it's but it was an immeasurably important album. Immeasurable. I mean, for, for you know, like that baseline, like when we heard doom, 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 doom. But I mean, for bugging out, you're like styles upon styles upon styles. What I have. Yeah. Right. You want to just fight for, but you still don't know that. You, you know, like what I, you know what I noticed about the album was how Q, I mean, Q-Tip obviously produced the album largely, and I still to this day don't can't understand how he was able to make his drum breaks so fat. Oh my god, it's crisp, and he carried that same thing over to he actually mixed Mob Deep's infamous album. What? I didn't know that. Absolutely. So when you listen to Infamous, he co-produced all, he co-produced that I believe will have it. And drum breaks had that same just slap, but it's clean. It's clean. So it's hollowed out too. It's yeah. hollowed out. It gives you it has yeah. the right amount of time. It's like the time signature, everything about it though was so on i just i just know the word i could say like even the body painted back and front cover like i could talk about that alone like that was so revolution that's revolutionary right there that's exposing something completely new it was like think about painting a body you know front to back you know it's like it there's so there's more to it than like they they were not old artists you know they they were tribe was my age you know at the time like so like 20 miles from my house they were making that music right and to me that was a miracle that was a miraculous thing because they were musicians of epic proportions you know right. i can't imagine making that many good songs in a row right and i don't know any other band that made that many and i don't know how much time we have but like to close an album with the scenario when that came out across the city, across Long Island, across wherever you were, when you heard the scenario, yeah. everybody went straight up mental. Like, yeah. everyone knew every single word. And so, again, um, that crossover, that bridge, I don't know in context enough to know, but I can tell you that, like, these are the times that radio controlled. You know, yeah. so 
you know, so when you got the tapes, you had to know and like, but every single person knew the word to every one of these songs everywhere. Right. Right. And scenario scenario would just pop off. It was just like, you were just like, what? Buster when Buster Rhyme shows up, <laughs> here we yeah. go. You know, like, so, so what I've done, I mean, in, in, in looking up, looking deeper into it, you know, scenario, the posse cut was a, uh, like a, like a standard in hip hop at this time. Like the posse cut. Everybody comes in. Yeah, right. Tribe Called Quest was like a nexus when it came to, you know, the native tongue. So you had Tribe Called Quest, you had De La Soul, you had Queen Latifah, you had Moni Love, you had uh, Beat Nuts, you had... Brand, brand Nubians, you had like, I mean, you had all the, like the offshoots of like, the, you know, like the deeper underground and then it would just... Yes. Sick. So you, so Black entire yeah. And you had to have a posse cut. Everybody had a posse cut. NWA, oh, yeah. NWA had posse cuts. Everybody had posse cuts. So, mm -hmm. yeah, this was beast. It's a beast. Like it was, but everybody killed their verse. I mean, I was like, you you died when you heard those verses, you know? Right. right. Everybody kills it. You know, like sometimes I hear like, you know, the, and I'm like, oh, that didn't fit at all. That didn't fit. You know, like sometimes I hear them today and I'm like. No, no, no! Don't, don't kill it with some. You know, give us something real. Give us a real verse. Um, and you know what? And you know what? The, the you know who had the most slept on verse on scenario to me? Who? Who absolutely murdered it? Dinko D. Dinko D. I I what? <laughs> what? Definitely wouldn't have thought. See, wouldn't have been able to name that name. Um, in my distant memory, I could almost. Dinko D on that song made me made me want to rap. <laughs> That's amazing. That's Dinko amazing. D made me want to rap. So just a couple of other quick notes about it. I did look into why check the rhyme, why rhyme is misspelled, and I actually DM'd Q-Tip and asked him. What? He didn't he didn't respond. But okay. um I read somewhere that uh, that's just how they name. That's how they just, you know, name the song. I mean, and people used to misspell words and name songs, but oh. I was always curious about like, like, was that just the name they turned in and something happened or whatever? So I was really curious about that. They had really those three singles, Check the Rhyme. I remember Check the Rhyme video. Yeah. On yeah. top of the, the cleaners yeah. and everything. It was just, like I said, this was 1991. Yeah. Life and death certificate, Apocalypse '91 by Public Enemy, you know, Compton's Most Wanted, Ghetto Boys, this and we had all. I mean, like, and so just to go back to the vantage point that we were listening to these from, you know, as being on the island, like Long Island suburbs, you know, like you know, and then you hear Tip come out with Queens just right up the road. Yeah, like, oh, man, that insane it, it's what made me like want to become a musician it's what made me you know like you know um it made everything feel accessible and real because they were also you know not that much older than us yeah you know now i was in my senior year they were maybe three or four years older than me making that they were in their early 20s in that album right, right. I, I think um and you know, already they were already they had made the infamous the infamous line on Check the Rhyme, record industry, people are shady. Yeah. They were going through a lot of stuff with Jive before this album got recorded. And they had already been exposed to, you know, there was, when when they were coming up, there was 
a quote unquote bidding war, according to the documentary. There was a bidding war for them. Jive won. They put out people's instinctive travels on the path of rhythm or whatever. And then they went in and they were supposed to be renegotiating or whatnot. And they renegotiated for another one. And it it was just a mess. And it just kind of reminds me it planted that seed. I don't remember there being a seed before that being planted that ended up turning into a decade later after this album came out, this staunch yeah. independent, this staunch independent seeking by mm -hmm. artists, you know, with yeah. Master P and Cash Money and, you know, working out their own deals. I think the fact that he said record industry rule 4080, that's something that I don't think will ever go away. Like mm -hmm. that wisdom. Yeah. Will, record industry people are shady so people watch it back because i think they smoke crack i don't doubt it look at how they act like look at this is the whole artist versus yeah. creative they, they, i mean they, artist versus business conflict that we talked about earlier mm -hmm. it's, it's really hard it's hard to you know when you start working on the money side which is important and i'm not overlooking it and i have a lot you know i've learned it over the years of how to deal with it and how to make yeah. money despite all the obstacles yeah it's like but yeah even we would listen to that and be like what do they mean and later it became very important to understand what they meant you know when we were artists and we were playing at the wetlands and then we were playing in knitting factories we were in the city playing and then you're like and um you know i learned a lot of what i know from people who grew up here in motown being like no that's not how it works um Ernest kelly from motown you know i met with Ernest kelly who's a brilliant person you know he's like this is not how it works <laughs> when you play. This is how much you're going to charge. This is how much you're worth, but you're not valuing yourself, son. Right. I remember, and I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, you have to value yourself, or how can you have value if you don't value yourself? There you that go. Was one of those, those words of wisdom. And so, but for some tribe ended up in this scenario when they were very young, you know? Yes what 20 19 you know like when they're already making big music big hits right right i'm not completely sure i don't i don't completely remember but again going back to the beginning art yeah. forces art should force you to ask uh, and it made us it made our generation ask like well what does he mean what does he mean by saying that i'm 14 does he mm -hmm. mean that you know it's not all dreams and wonder when you get signed to a record label and then you listen to deeper in the album and mm -hmm. that theme permeates a lot of the album it does. It's, rap promoter. it's it's all over the album yep rap promoter you want to be in the business with diamond d and sadat x and lord jamar you, you want to be in the business it's that easy right you never really think you never oh, never really processed it because it was just built into our minds from yeah. listening and rod we have to address one thing from this i know we're way over our time but like oh. but hold on when um, when sky pager came when we listened to scott when we're like wait 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 when we like when he talked when, when sky pager came out we're like everybody knew what was up with that song you know and like that think about how that pre predecesses all of time right now you know like in the cell phone era like the pager was the predecessor of the cell phone yes 
you know, there were so many connotations that went with the pager. Like the pager for us, like the only people we ever paged was like your drug dealer, like at the time. I don't know if you remember that. One, yeah. But like you just hit, you'd be like, yo, if you had a sky, if you had a pager or a sky pager, like for people who never heard of that, yeah. it was like a little device that you'd have to like, it was almost like before text message, you text message. We, we have to explain to people what pagers are. <laughs> we, have, we have to, we have to, and I get that. And I never age myself, age is beauty, but, but. It is funny to think that, like, yeah, you'd be hitting up, like, yo, how do I page? When you couldn't figure out how to do it, you're like, you knew you had status if you had a pager, and he talks about it, right? Yeah, you know, and you're like, and then that just elevated everything to ungodly proportions. Where like, you're like, these are the gods, these are the gods, right here. And technology, hip hop technology, and sky pagers were a status symbol, for sure. And the drums. See, I'm a, I'm listening to the to the to the to the production. Yeah, the drums, crazy. Oh, crazy. You, I mean, you know, you know what the East Coast stomp is, don't you? No, talk oh, to me. You ever know what the East Coast stomp was? No. East Coast stomp was if you go back and you watch the case of the PTA video. Mm. But, you know, I think it was it was before that. The the East Coast stomp was the I, I'm not about to do it because I'm 43. I'm sitting here going, <laughs> don't worry, I won't do it. I promise not to rap. Drums, I just when I when you talk about Sky Pager, I just I just think about the drums and just yeah. slapping. Sl- killing it. We'd call that the yeah, like you know, like um the one drop, the click, boom, the bang, you know, like all of those things mm-hmm. they dropped, you know, like, but at the same time. It was exposing everybody to um, culture, you know. Yeah. And so it was, it was above and beyond all things. It was just it was music that was accepted, played. The radio could play it. Yeah, it was. <laughs> you could listen to it, and and that's hard to actually put into context now when there are no walls. It was. There was a lot of walls back then. Like it was almost a miracle to think about anybody coming up when they did. Yeah. Like think about how you had to come up, you know, by making a song and passing a tape to somebody. Yeah. Some AR guy got it, you know, over at the club in the, you know, like you're like, how did that even happen? Or maybe they slipped it to just the right DJ on the radio. Right. I played one. And so now like the walls are actually kind of um, different. There's still are walls. There are. There are still, there's still gatekeeping that happens. There is. There's gatekeeping. Brandon said where you got to spend 100 k um, There's still gatekeepers that are involved. But I think that the reason that this was able to kind of sum all this up, I think that the reason that this album permeated the culture was because it was very honest. Yeah. And it provided a very humble contrast to what we were starting to see hip hop become. Yeah. Um, well, you know, like, right. Because the, the album before that, that like had all the stars was, you know, was definitely public enemy or NWA. And like, you know, those were amazing albums, but they would not play them on radio. Absolutely. At the time that this album came out, gangster rap was dominant. Like, I mean, sure. you know, and I mean, I think people talk about the 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 power dynamic shifting in hip hop after the chronic. I think it was before that. I think it was NWA myself. Definitely. And the contrast between three guys from Queens who 
you know, like <laughs> like girls and four <laughs> beads and shit versus NWA that that NWA had like an iconic like a like a like a caricature of aggression. And I love it. Don't get me wrong. I think oh, yeah. I thought it was very revolutionary. Oh, I yeah. thought it was I thought it was a product of counterculture. I thought it was a product of it was a different slant to it was a different slant to the, the democratization of music. Like where yeah. you can come out and say what you were saying and it was shocking, but you knew that it was built out of a certain level of rage. But by the time this by the time in niggas for life came out, it had become kind of like caricature-ish in a well, way. Well, similar, like you know, remember I tell you about like looking up to the Twin Towers as a kid, you're like this. So when that when that came out, I could only look up to it like the Twin Towers. Yes. I couldn't enter those towers. Yes. And NWA, not only because of what they were saying, but the production quality and how raw it was. I mean, we lived for it. We loved it. We listened to it. I, I remember listening to it until it like the tape fell out, like it broke in my yeah. car, you know, but like yep. what the truth was was we could only we could only watch that. We couldn't, we weren't participants right. yet because it was just something that we knew something we knew something was up, but we didn't right. understand it. We knew there was violence that was unfair. We right. knew we knew revolution was important, but we didn't know how to participate in it. Right, exactly. And so tribe was a contrast and a con and, and a and a piece that was very connected to the rest of the timeline. Just like artists like to the in today's world, artists like J. Cole, Kendrick Lamar, the reason that they stick out so much is because they are so anti the rest of what is happening in commercial hip hop. And that's the only reason I use those specific artists before, which like looking back on like, you know, what I what I want to clarify that point that I like when you look at albums in their entirety, not single drops, you know, like right. Kendrick puts out, not only does he put out his voice. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's like, I'm just like when Kendrick's out, I had that same feeling as when Tribe came out. Okay. And when, Tyler, you know, like that, that album, like I'll put on that album, like Kendrick's album, Mad City, like I listened to Mad City 500 times. Yeah. It, you know, I, that was my gym album where I was just like, I couldn't absorb enough of it. I couldn't take in enough of it. I couldn't, and I can't understand it. It was a story. It's a story. It's a story. It is. It is. Right? And it so is. when I look at an album like that, Kendrick, like, I, I don't, you know, like outside of like, you know, like you said, Mob Deep, Wu, you know, there wasn't many albums that in entirety told that whole story of an exact time yes. as well as Kendrick did. And even Tyler, why I love Tyler the Creator, because again, that anti-commercialism and yes. just Tyler being just like, it wasn't even, it wasn't relative Tyler to Kendrick, but like when Tyler the Creator came out, I was just like, in terms of just album production, yeah. in, you know, abstractions and defiance, I was like, this is monster, monster, and and I hadn't had that experience since Tribe, De La Soul, Black Sheep, Brand Nubians. You know, like all like I hadn't had that experience with hip hop. It was like kind of an era lost for me. Now I, that was probably on me. <laughs> it wasn't on hip hop. It was on me. Obviously, there was a billion amazing albums and artists that came out. So. Right, right, absolutely, and and so so 
I guess we'll we'll end it by saying that, you know, by going back to that question. Um, without low end theory, there would be no I think that without low end theory, there would be no I I would say I would I, and I hate to say this and I have to be honest. Mm -hmm. I think that without low end theory, we wouldn't know who Jay Dilla is outside of Detroit. To a degree. Jay Dilla is I'm totally with you on that. Like completely no. brilliant. But I feel is when I hear low end theory, I hear Jay mm -hmm. Dilla before yeah. Jay Dilla became Jay Dilla. Mm -hmm. I think also without low end theory, there would be no um that connection would not be as firmed as it is because when you look at what became known as the beat culture of LA with the flying yeah. lotus and the Catronada and the the you know the print the the place where a lot of that work was being done was called the low end theory in mm -hmm. LA that involved you know the beat culture or whatnot and I think that instrumental like like avant-garde hip-hop mm -hmm. owes, owes its existence to low-end theory and tribe in general i completely stand by that just like i can relate it to classic rock where you know without the rolling stones and the beatles who are both groups who like you know they borrowed from lots of different genres right the beatles borrowed from genres but at a certain point they took it, they owned it, and it became them. And so, you know, like when you're working with inspirations, eventually the inspirations absorb into you, you know, and then you become them and then you are them. And so when you think about the Beatles albums like Magical Mystery Tour or Abbey Road or, you know, or think about those like pivotal albums in, in history right. or, or Jimi Hendrix, Acts as Bold as Love, you know, like we're all of a sudden you are the synthesis of everything you've learned and all you've become. And the reason I could close on this is because as an artist, you know, we can only be the synthesis of who we are and what we've learned. And uh, the reason I want to stay a lifetime learner and the reason I think, you know, Rod, me and you could vibe for a thousand hours is because you as a teacher, <laughs> me, I just want to learn. I'm a lifelong learner. Like, you know, and you know, Every single day, we can pick little parts of albums, of art, of technology, and synthesize them into what we're going to create today. Yeah. And you know, you know, all we have is to this is all we have is this very second. Absolutely. The present. The present is all I believe in. And so, you know, while we have had errors of our past and we have a lot of errors to correct, um, I believe in the spirit and the renaissance of the future. And uh, I hope we can find that bridge. And uh, I believe that the Roaring Twenties is upon us. And we're gonna put. That's not. You said that before. You said that when we talked a couple months ago. Yeah. That, that there's going to be a. Our our hope is that there's going to be a revolution. Yeah. Um. Break, one, break it all. In the coming months, and and not a revolution necessarily of. Um, that's based around negativity but um, yeah. I think that I think that people if I could say I think that people will have grown to appreciate the great things that we created and we didn't create yeah 
Like, right. There's be- there's a lot of bad. There's a lot of bad music that happened during the time of the great music. Yeah, but, and we can. But listen, I'm talking about. You know what I'm saying? I'm not sitting. I'm not sitting still. Right. Right. All over with. This is gonna be like the greatest summer in the history of the planet. I want to live through that lens for the rest of my life. You know, like. And as you know, you said it best when you said at the beginning of the whole show, like, um, success to me is doing what you want to do. Yeah. No more to it. And if you could find success within your purpose, within your vision, and even if, even if you don't have that vision and you have to work every single day, just imagining that vision, that's also success. Absolutely. But uh, yeah, but my hope, my hope is for a future that we can all, um, you know, learn from each other, create a more equitable society, and then have like literally probably the most important party ever in American culture, which is going to be like, you know, we scraped the bottom of, we scraped the belly of the plane when we came in for this landing over the last couple of years. Right. And we learned a lot about, about ourselves. Like, you know, we learned a lot about, even within ourselves, the things we had to unlearn. Um, I had to unlearn things um, that I still want to learn. <laughs> like, um, But I believe you, when you hit that rock bottom, that we can rise up. And I agree. Maybe, and then maybe next time we'll talk about De La Soul, uh, you know, three feet high and rise. Oh, we can do that too. So we, we want to definitely give a shout out to a tribe called Quest. Um, I want to give a, a special shout out before we go to um, Bob Power, mm. who mixed the album, and Tom Coyne, who mastered the album. The same person who mastered Billy Ocean. Is that and, real? Are you serious? And Life is Too Short and Single Ladies by Beyonce. I did not. Low end theory. And, and I'm always a person who gives honor to those people behind the boards for laying a soundscape that has permeated the last 30 years um, just about um, a record that is timeless and something that we should all ascend to. I do want to take the time to thank our sponsors, um, Leon Speakers, E-Digging, Grove Studios. You can follow us at Zero Noise Podcast and, and um, let me do something real quick that now oh, there we go okay now we're good to go okay so zero noise noise with a z <laughs> podcast <laughs> um thank you for joining us and and i do want to say noah thank you very much um for um your spirit and the manner in which you have um driven innovation in your own company um i know that it's an inspiration for those of us who have been involved with you for the last year um and i just appreciate all you do and i'm glad that you came in the early days and me trying to make this podcast work thanks for taking a chance on this and um you know thank you very much hey uh rod appreciate you more than you can imagine um you're an inspiration to me and all of us at leon thank you let's let's get the work done peace absolutely have a great Friday night, everybody. Hey, do you have a drink near you? I got the bottle. All right, you got the bottle. You ready for one little toast? We're going to do that off camera. Let, let's end it first, and then we'll go. But I do want to tell everybody again, follow us at Zero Noise Podcast, Noise with a Z, um, and just look out for us next week. We'll see you next week. Peace. Everybody, Rod Wallace, yes. Thank you. <laughs>